0: Thank you all for being here, and welcome to our Media Agenda Dialogues and Talks uh, for Week 6. We have an excellent panel, and I'm really looking forward to hear what three uh, people who actually make the media and who make London's media presentations have to say um, about our city, the city where we all live in, and the city we occupy as... Consumers, consumers of the city, consumers of the media, and consumers um, of knowledge as well. London, as you might know, is considered to be the most cosmopolitan city in the world. It is a place where people live, where people consume, but also a place where they construct their identities. Many of us sitting in the room, among others. As we saw in yesterday's lecture... And, as you know from your own experience, London is also one of the most mediated places in the world. We see London in films, on television, in music, and in literature, just to say, to mention a few of the media that we consume and where we consume images of London. As we also saw yesterday, and you presented the powerful evidence, many of those media representations might inform important decisions that we make in our lives about where we go go to study, or where we want to live, or where we might desire to live and might not be able to live. So this is not just a place that is represented in the media, but those representations are very important about the way that we think about the space that we live in. We live in London, and also about the way that we think about this space as a space of identity. So some of the questions that our speakers will address today in many different ways are those two. In what ways do media and communications, and media and communications in the broader sense that include elements of um, uh, mediated communication, interpersonal mediated communication, representations on television but also music, might contribute to the identity of London and to the identity of London's people. And in what ways do representation of London and its inhabitants in television, in film, in music, in literature, define the ways that we imagine the city, that we imagine the city, that we consume it, we desire it, or try to avoid it? So we have three speakers, people who are writing about London who are recording media cultures of London or who are making London's media cultures through the representation of its people. So Eve Harris, who will be our first speaker, is an author and an author of a well-known book, uh, which I will just put on here and which you can go immediately on your uh, social media and personal media to consume or at least inform yourselves about um the marrying of kani kaufman it's a book which has actually been long listed for the man broker prize 2013 a very prestigious uh, prize and a book that is available um online and has very many good reviews as well, so this must say something. Uh, So Yves Harris taught for 12 years in inner city comprehensives and independent schools in London and also in Tel Aviv after moving to Israel in 1999. In 2002, she returned to London to resume teaching in an all-girls Catholic convent school. The marrying of Kanik Kaufman was inspired by her final year of teaching at the All Girls Ultra Orthodox Jewish School in Northwest West London. Eve will start by introducing her book and sharing some extracts from the book with us. Just to briefly introduce, uh, before we go to Eve, our two other speakers, Lloyd Bradley, sitting next to her, is a music journalist and author of Sounds Like London, 100 Years of Black Music in the Capital, and again, both books um, I have actually uh, just ordered, um, so, uh, Lloyd Bradley is considered to be one of the major British writers in black music from funk to reggae. Bradley began contributing to NME, a very well known music magazine, in the 1980s and then wrote for Q, Mojo, and many other publications. He's the author of Past Culture, A History of Reggae, and Sounds Like London 100 Years of Black Music in the Capital. And our two authors will be uh, followed by Fatima Manji, a reporter at Channel 4 News. So fresh out of the screen. Um, Fatima Manji is a reporter at uh, Channel 4 News since 19- 2012, January 2012. Before this, Fatima was a reporter presented and video journalist for the BBC in the East of England, where she investigated stories including exploitative landlords and hate crime against migrants. So we will have three different perspectives which all bring us back to London and the culture and identity in the capital which is the theme of today's talk and the theme of this week's London Focus. So I'll pass uh, the floor to them and we'll hear first from Eve and then we'll move straight to Lloyd and then to Fatima. Thank you. Hello. Um, My book is set
1: in Golders Green in Hendon, um, northwest London in um, the Haredi community. So if any of you have seen Jews with the earlocks, black hats, the women wearing wigs, very modest, very covered up, um, this is a community that I've written about. Um, and the extract I'm about to read to you is um, about the groom who's about to marry Honey, the heroine of the book. And he's Um, about to have a very strange discussion with a rabbi who's been teaching him all about his duties as a married man. The week before the wedding, Baruch had sat in Rabbi Zilberman's office. The room was a dusty grey box. There were two doors, both locked, but there were no windows. Papers covered the desk, books filled the shelves and lay scattered on the floor. There was barely room for two plastic chairs. The filing cabinets closed in on him. A huge photo of a beloved sage hung on the wall. The old man stared at him, cataracts glowing blue-white, his hands frozen claws hanging from gaping sleeves. Had he suffered wedding night nerves? Under the photo sat Rabbi Zilberman, a study in monochrome. His beard was streaky charcoal, his black suit speckled with dandruff. His sad, grey eyes examined Baruch. Rabbi Zilberman officiated at the synagogue that Baruch's family attended in Golders Green. Baruch was more familiar with the Rabbi's rounded back, bent in supplication at the front of the shul. The Rabbi's son, Avrami, had attended Baruch's school in Hendon and was one of his few and closest friends. But Baruch's relationship with Rabbi Zilberman had always been one of deference and formality. Whenever he had visited Avromi, Rabbi Zilberman would acknowledge Baruch with a curt nod and a stern patriarchal smile, the corners of his mouth flexing upwards momentarily, his expression remaining sombre. After inquiring politely after Baruch's parents, the rabbi would move swiftly on, a whirling column of dark wool and white shirt, leaving the two boys silent and awkward in his wake. That had been the extent of his familiarity with the thin grey-bearded man sitting opposite him, until these strange compulsory tutorials had begun. The rabbi started, You are responsible for all your wife's needs. You must feed her, clothe her, provide a roof over her head, and pay for all her material necessities. But you must also give her pleasure in your relations with her. Baruch shifted in his seat. Pleasure. It sounded so simple. He'd gone as far as to do some private research on the subject at Swiss Cottage Library, far away from the shtetl of Hendon. He'd even swapped his skull cap for a baseball cap for further anonymity. Too shy to ask, he'd roam the stacks lost like Moses in the, de- in the desert until he'd found the right section. There he sat, immersed in sex advice manuals, a world so taboo to him that his heart raced with guilt. But he could not stop. Fascinated, he read on, and stared at diagrams that made his ears burn with shame, clitoris, stimulate, arouse, libea, climax. The female body made no sense at all. At school he glanced at the grubby men's magazines passed from desk to desk. The pictures had made his head swim, the women so brazen, their mouths glistening and open, their flesh sleek and pneumatic. He could not equate them to honey. He'd never even seen her elbows, yet he was duty bound to give her pleasure. So, these two who are about to get married, I should have said, are 19 years old. They've met only four times, and they have no clue about what's going to happen on the wedding night. An orgasm, Rabbi, he offered. Realizing his mistake, he flushed. The rash of acne on his left cheek suddenly backlit. Rabbi Zilberman raised an eyebrow. Yes, I believe that's what they call it nowadays. But he did not probe further. How will I know if if I've pleased my wife? He had to ask. This was his chance. His mouth had gone dry, but the words had slipped out. You will know with time, with practice, she may even tell you. But don't waste time chattering about frivolous things. Action is important, not words. A child is a wonderful mitzvah, good deed. And to have relations with her while she is pregnant is a double mitzvah. Pregnant. Baruch had almost forgotten that these mysterious relations could lead to such a thing. He wasn't ready to be a father yet. The rabbi seemed to expand and fill the room. And Baruch, just as we do not eat like animals, we do not have relations like them either. Hashem, God, created us with physical desires and marriage liberates us to enjoy those desires in the right way. "'not like beasts in the field.' Rabbi Zilberman was eyeballing him. "'Like beasts in the field? "'But how was that anatomically possible?' "'He remembered the pictures. "'But surely the behind was the wrong place.' Baruch was very relieved that Hashem had solved this problem for him. "'The rabbi was not done yet. "'And when your wife is Nidda, you do not go near her. "'Don't even touch her until her bleeding has finished.' And she has purified herself in the mikveh, the ritual bath. Then you may rejoice in each other again, just like on your wedding night. But all this your wife will know. Consider the time when you cannot have relations as a time to get to know each other again, like brother and sister. To solve any disputes and deepen your friendship. The rabbi spoke calmly, with no embarrassment. Baruch stared at the rabbi's ear. It all sounded very wise and sensible, and it was not news to him. He studied the family purity laws in the Gemara, a text so dry and remote that any possible eroticism had been bleached out. He learnt basic biology at school, but the mechanical reality still baffled him. How could she bleed from down there each month? The thought was making him nauseous. Do you want (coughs) to continue? Two days before the wedding, Honey washed, combed, brushed and scrubbed herself raw. Sitting in the little cabin, she waited for the light to go on above the door. The bathroom was a delight. Immaculately clean, its surfaces gleamed unlike the one at home. The walls were painted pastel pink. Matching pink towels lay neatly folded on a heated rail. There'd even been a brand-new toothbrush and a fresh tube of kosher toothpaste, a mini-pack of earbuds, a nail file and a pair of nail scissors and tweezers, all laid out just for her. That morning, Honey had performed her last internal check as as the Rebetzin Zolberman, the rabbi's wife, had instructed. The soft bedeka cloth remained brilliant white, not a drop of blood. She was ready for the mikveh, the ritual bath. The Rebetzin had accompanied her and was waiting in the reception. Honey examined the framed notice on the wall. Before beginning cleaning preparations, remove A, jewellery, B, false teeth, dental plates. For temporary caps, ask your rabbi. C, false eyelashes. D, bandages, plasters. E, makeup. F, nail polish. Then cut and file nails of hands and feet. Brush teeth, floss, rinse mouth and use the toilet if necessary. Then bathe and shower before immersion. Check and remove any dried blood or pus, dried milk from nipples, remnants of dough, nits or lice, splinters or scabs, ink or paint. Connie was pretty sure she did not have any lice or dried milk on her. Wrapped in a fluffy towel, her hair streamed as she sat on the edge of the bath. Under her breath, she recited the prayer prior to Tavilla, Immersion. May my husband's eyes look only towards me, and my eyes look only towards him. May my husband consider himself more blessed because of me than in any other blessing in the world. She imagined that behind the doors of the other cubicles... There were young brides waiting like her. It was impossible to know. It was one woman at at a time in the mikveh. Bing! The light went on. Honey leapt to her feet, checked that the tower was secure and opened the door. Outside the mikveh pool shimmered invitingly. Its deep blue waters rippled, reflections glinting on the white ceiling and against the white tiled walls. It was larger than she'd imagined. The pool was about ten feet long and seven feet deep filled the bare room. Hello, darling. Open your towel and let me check you. Honey jumped. Behind her stood the mikvah lady. She was a wizened nut of a woman. Her hair was wrapped in a faded blue headscarf. She wore wooden clogs and navy tights. Her smile was warm and honest, but her eyes were as sharp as needles. Honey opened her towel. The mikvah lady gazed intently at every part of her body, ''What a sweet little bride you are,'' cooed the mikvah lady. Connie felt ridiculous. All her life she'd hidden her nakedness from prying eyes, and now here she was, her body being scrutinised by a total stranger. The mikvah lady asked her to turn so as to check for any strand of hair that might have been shed and clung to her back. ''Nails, darling?'' Connie presented her hands for inspection. The Mikva lady held them and examined each ragged crescent. Then she flipped them over and peered at her palms. Feet? Connie held each foot up. And have you combed your hair down there? Asked the mikvah lady. Connie was not sure what on earth could be hiding in the hair down there. So she nodded dutifully. OK, then, my darling. In you go. Soak yourself well, my dear. Immerse yourself fully. Three steps, then two strokes, and she was in the middle of the pool. The water was warm. She sank down and it closed womb-like over her head. Her heart thudded in her ears. Rising to the surface, she could see two dark watery s- shapes standing by the edge of the mikvah. She burst through and gulped a lungful of air. When she opened her eyes, she saw rabbits and smiling down at her. Next to her stood the mikveh lady, smiling the same ecstatic smile. Honey clamped her hands over her meager back breasts, She'd not expected the Robertson to come and watch. A small bubble shot out from behind her. She prayed that she that the Robertson had not noticed. The Robertson spoke softly. Honey, you need to immerse yourself three times and then recite the blessing. Don't touch the walls to push yourself under, because your palms will not be pu- fully purified. Spread your fingers and toes as wide as you can. Let the water wash every crevice. Ready? Honey nodded and sank deep into the mikvah. She knew that when a woman prays under water, her prayer flies to God immediately. She hung suspended in time and space, her limbs spread-eagled, the water entering every fold. She opened her eyes, the water did not sting, it was pure and natural. Please Hashem, please God, don't let it hurt on my wedding night. Please Hashem, make it easy and quick. She dipped twice more. Finally, she rose to the surface and recited the blessing. Reborn, she was ready to be married. I think
0: we'll go straight
2: to the other presentations <clears throat> and then have a discussion. Well, that was um, a, a tough act to follow, I think. <laughs> um I wrote Sounds Like London as, um... Can you hear me if I sit up? Because, um... cold. Oh cool. Um, I wrote Sounds Like London, really. It's, it's called A Hundred Years of Black Music in London. But really, it's not a story of music. It's always a really crap ringtone when that happens, you know? <laughs> It couldn't just sound like an old telephone, could it? <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, back to the point. Um, it, was, um, it was a book about London. It was a book about how people had arrived in London and essentially become London. It was... Um, I realised that the music became a metaphor for what had happened, that the music went from... Uh, let's say we start with uh, an image of Lord Kitchener, coming down the gangplank of the Windrush in 1948 singing London is the place for me as an apparently uh, um, off the cuff calypso and then we move to the last um, image of the book and it's uh, Wiley on stage at the V Festival or a Tiny Temper on the breakfast TV sofa advising us how to make a decent cup of tea and you can't get more English than that so you've gone from totally immigrant to totally English in less than three generations but as I was um, researching the book I realised that the important thing here is they were the same person that um, Lord Kitchener and Tiny Temper were the same person, they were both about the same age, both singing about roughly the same things what goes on around them, making political um, statements making sex rhymes just having a bit of a laugh, you know they were the same person really the only thing that was different was the cut of their trousers and kitchener stepped off the gang of the windrush with trousers up here tiny temper's got his hanging off his arse you know now you know uh evolution or progress i'll leave you to uh, judge that one but um the thing was what the important thing here was london and it was as much as these guys were the same but it was how london reacted to them that allowed them to do what they did and we talked um, uh, the introduction we were talking about the media and how the media um, reacted to this and in many ways what I found was once you took stuff away from the accepted media the establishment if you like and largely let people, let Londoners get on with it that a London culture evolved, that people found their own level that really the best thing to do is um, most people are really kind of All right, you know, and um, evolved just to to get along. I mean, the great thing about London is, unlike uh, say New York, for instance, you haven't got this kind of apartheid on different blocks where you you cross a street and you become you're in Spanish town, you cross another street and it's it's black, you cross another street and so on. London, we all live on top of each other. I mean, my entire life until six months ago, I'd only lived on two pages of the A to Z, so it's about what goes on around you. You know, um, Here, Londoners essentially get on with each other, kind of because they have to, and musically, as the metaphor for this went, that um, we only had one radio station for a long time. It was uh, Radio 1. I'm old enough to remember when Capital Radio started, and up until then, you all listened to bits of everything, so the music... Became what was happening to the people. Every, everything was mixing together. It was, um, it was quite a nice place to be. Now, I've picked uh, three excerpts to read from um, uh, Sounds Like London, and what they are—they take place over maybe thirty years, perhaps forty years—and each one is. It shows how things progressed a little more. The first one is. Um, lovers rock reggae i don't know anybody know what that is well done um what it was was a very english form of reggae it was a, essentially a jamaican music that was imported but this is what london did to it and more importantly why london did what it did to it we talked uh, about the media's perception of what was being told what was being given and At that time, the mainstream uh, music industry was obsessed with roots reggae, obsessed with what's coming from Jamaica, and uh, promoted that, and actually overlooked what was going on under its own noses, which was, in many ways, far more um, relevant. So, this is um, a quote from Janet Kay. Janet was uh, the queen of Lover's Rock, they called her. She had a a number two hit, which escaped from, um, you know, the... Underground to get in the charts, and uh, she tells of what it. The, it's almost a conflict between what was being pushed at people and what was happening underground on the sound system thing. She says, although I'd grown up hearing reggae music, I'd also grown up watching Top of the pups listening to Motown and pop music, and the Beatles or Michael Jackson. Acts like the Supremes, Bob and Marcia, or the Jackson 5 were the acts I looked forward to seeing. When I was young, I used to idolise singers like Lulu and Dusty Springfield because they were on on TV and the radio. I used to buy all the Motown records, the Philadelphia Sound or Earth, Wind & Fire or Denise Williams, anything with nice harmonies. I could have sung soul music, but I was handed the opportunity to go into the studio to make a reggae record. It was a natural thing, very pure at the time. Us singers just went out and did it how we felt. So many of us loved reggae music, but didn't feel part of the Rastafari movement of Roots or Back to Africa. I understood what it was about, but I didn't feel it related to my life and my surroundings. So it wasn't as if we had anything to follow. There was no image thing. We were the second generation of black people over here. We could do what came naturally to us. It was organic. Whatever had been thrown into our pot went into making lovers rock. So this was something that was happening away from the mainstream, but it was also happening underground. As things moved on, maybe the next generation, it became important for characters, uh, sons and daughters of immigrants, to actually let the world know or let London know they were here, invite London into what they were doing. So I'm going to move us forward 10 years now to um, Soul to Soul and uh, Jazzy B, who Jazzy wrote the foreword for the book and to me really epitomises a lot about London black music, London black culture. So Jazzy's Soul to Soul sound system was the first one that took something that was being done away from the mainstream and introduced it to the mainstream. He was always very, very particular that this should happen, and this might explain a little why. The crowds were changing at this point. Oh, by the way, they've just changed the name of their sound system from Rico to Soul to Soul, so that says a lot about what he's doing. He says, the crowds were changing at that point, Now there was young white boys and girls from working-class backgrounds who were far more integrated. They'd been young kids growing up when there were three sound systems and every street. They all knew about them. In our area, it was Greek kids or Irish kids or English kids. And as we got older, we got into music together, just like we'd be playing football together or chasing girls together. But the cool thing about them was they weren't trying to be black or anything like that. They were just there. It wasn't a master plan. We were just reflecting what was going on around us as kids growing up in London. We wanted to define street culture as it really was. It wasn't about sufferation or being dowdy or downtrodden. It was about being optimistic, doing quite well for yourself, having a bit of a swagger. We wanted to say, we're here and we're enjoying ourselves. Kids in London, across the board, could relate to that. So you see Jazzy was reflecting the the environment he'd grown up in which I mean he says in the book later he says the media never got us they still don't so it's the idea that this wasn't the London that we were seeing on the BBC or reading about in magazines this was actual real London, it was, it was what was going on organically you know, so let's move us for the final bit, let's move us forward another 20 years from um it's all an evolutionary process and we've got to uh to grime uh, which pretty much dominates the the pop landscape to such a degree the bbc had to launch a a new station to cope with it the pirates were you know were actually taking the piss out the bbc so they had to launch one extra in order to cope with this but here's where we are with this um I'm talking to a grind producer called Jammer, who is he's not only a producer, he's an entrepreneur. He sold his own records, he'd run his own raves, he, you know, so on. So when I initially started producing, I started grabbing reggae influences, hip-hop influences, mixing it with my own London flavour. Then you've got MCs on top of it, and everything I saw was a vision. I thought, right, this is it. This is something, this is fresh, this can work. Now, ten years down the line, you've got Dizzy Rascals selling millions of records, you've got people like Tinchy Strider, and you've got people like Chipmunk. They're pop stars now, who grew up listening to people like myself and Dizzy. Now they've come forward and made a career of it. It's a scene that's wide open. It's changed the way music is made, and it touches on everybody growing up. The people that I was performing with six or seven years ago aren't the people I'm performing to now. They still listen, they will still buy albums, they still support the records. They might rave to us once in a while. So when they're in Ibiza or something. But and everyone underneath that scale grew up with us. Take general raving culture from about 23 down, taken from under 15 raves as well. All those people represent a new fan base that wasn't there when we started and has grown up on this music. They're into it because that's all they know about this is now what london is and that i think really sums up the way black culture particularly has made its mark in london the way many cultures have made its, their mark in london leave them to get on by themselves and people will get on
3: Okay, so, um, unlike these two lovely people, I'm not clever enough to write a book. And in true, fickle television journalism style, I've brought you pictures to look at instead. <laughs> so, what I'm going to do is just show you these images, because each of them has provoked either a story in my personal or professional life, or some thoughts about what that particular image means, and what it means for London, and London's cultural identity. So, very first image, does everyone know who that is? I should point out, if you don't, I will take you outside to be shot, so you should know. So, that is very obviously Mo Farah, Olympian, and a a poster boy for London. And I got thinking about this image in August 2012, when I had an American friend visiting during the Olympics, and she's also a journalist, and she said... Fatima, what on earth has happened to London? I really can't understand it. She said, I got off the plane and there was this huge billboard and there was this gigantic picture of a tall black man with a Muslim name bowing down and everyone's hero worshipping him. And she couldn't understand it. And everywhere there were signs saying, go mo, and that's all we'd ever talk about. And that wasn't the London that she'd seen on the television. That wasn't the London that she recognised and she found it very strange. So her, in true journalist style, decided to write about us. And I just want to read you a couple of lines that she put in in her article about us. Uh, And she's writing about the fact that Mo Farah was asked if he'd rather run for Somalia than Britain. And his response was, look, mate, this is my country. And she says, his words appeared to echo the sentiments of thousands of immigrants. I've never felt so British before, one friend exclaimed over tea. You won't recognize us, others laughed. That's true. I've known these friends for eight years, and I'd never seen them in such a patriotic euphoria. But it's easy to understand why. Ennis Ennis and Farrah are versions of themselves. They're black and they're brown, and that's what much of London looks like. So in one way it was a very kind of positive image and we were revelling in it and saying how great is London and look how diverse we are and this is our hero and he looks like us. But I also thought back to 1998 and the French World Cup football team had won at the time and there was a lot made off the fact that most of this team was Arab and African and isn't it great that France had finally overcome all its race issues? And there was a witty remark, if you like, going around at the time saying that yeah, France can love Arabs as long as they win the World Cup. And I thought back to that situation, and I thought, mm, I wonder if it's the case here that London can only love a Somali asylum-seeking Muslim black immigrant if he can win a gold medal. And I don't know, that's a question maybe you want to think about. I'm not sure I know the answer. Anyway, on to image two. I thought back to the first image when I came across this second image. And this is in June 2013, so less than a year on. I was in the newsroom, and the news editor came up to me and said, Fatima, we've heard there's a mosque on fire. Can you go and check it out and see what this has happened? And some of you may know this image. Um, This is in the aftermath of the murder of a soldier. I'm not going to get too much into the events there, because I'm sure you all know. um, And it's not hugely relevant to what I'm using this image for. But anyway, so I get sent there because it's politically important at the time. Turn up, this is Muswell Hill in North London. And yes, there is a mosque on fire, and locals who are there are saying, look, there are letters with the words EDL graffitied on, so it's suggested that this is some sort of racial or religiously motivated hate crime. And I checked with the police, and they said, yes, that's the case, um, there are letters which say EDL. And I thought about the images that we'd seen less than a year ago of Mo Farah. And the reason I thought about that was because the community that goes to this mosque is not of a, is a very similar background to Mofara. It's made up largely of British Muslim Somali families. And I thought, how could it be possible that in the same city, within less than a year, we were seeing such different images concerning a very similar group of people or people who have similar identities? And we were seeing something that seem to be an apparent collective punishment of a community from a particular background in the heart of liberal North London and so that got me thinking about the first image again on to my third image oh sorry this is just a picture from from that particular community so you've got that so my fourth image actually Now, you might have seen this map. This one's been doing the rounds on Facebook, and it's a fascinating one to look at. Um, This is a map showing languages spoken in London. I haven't had it independently verified, but I think Savills is the property company that's come up with it, and it's fascinating to look at. Now, the census of London shows there's 107 languages spoken in London, which is incredible when you think about it, and it's such a cosmopolitan place to be in. But when you look at that map, Closely, you also notice that there are huge swathes of languages spoken in particular sections of the city. So, you know, huge swathes of Gujarati here, huge swathes of Bengali here, little suburb of French there. And I did wonder how much do these people who live in each of these little sections really live alongside each other? And we always talk about London being a melting pot. I mean, you you read any article about London from a foreign journalist and they'll immediately launch into London, the melting pot. And you think, well, is that really a melting pot? Are we just living alongside each other and tolerating each other? Or are we living with, with each other? So that's something to think about. And then my last image, which involves politics don't know if any of you... Did any of you see these vans driving around London? You did? Great. So, for anyone who doesn't know, this is the go-home van, and it was a pilot operation run by the Home Office, essentially to crack down on illegal immigration. Now, I'm not going to get into the huge politics of it, because there's lots of this stuff around it. If you want to ask me about that later, I can, because I spent most of summer covering stories around this. But it got a serious reaction from London against it. Um, Now, you might think that it's just political posturing, or you might think it's really addressing a serious problem of illegal immigration. But the point I'm making with this particular image is not so much about the politics or what the government thinks of immigrants. It's the fact that the mainstream media, around the time that this van was driving around London, was covering immigration and diversity in London in the context of this van. And the context of this van puts on the agenda that immigration is a problem. Now, you might not agree with that. I might not agree with that. But the fact is, I was covering stories and I was walking down the streets of London in different boroughs around Brent and Southall and asking people about immigration, only in the frame, framing the question in the sense that immigration is a problem. Now, that does matter because people consume that media. And so everyone watching... I'm not saying that they're all passive recipients, but everyone watching is seeing immigration and diversity in London covered in a way that suggests it's a problem. I think that when we go looking forward to kind of how culture uh, and attitudes to diversity and immigration develop in London, that matters. I'm not saying that it completely determines the way that we feel about our neighbours and each other, but I think it does influence it. And that's something to think about when we think of the future and particularly with rising house prices and various other things happening in London as to how diversity and different cultures live alongside each other when you've got this mainstream framework of immigration being a problem. That's it.
0: Thank you all for fascinating, uh, uh, even if very different perspectives. We started from something very ordinary in many ways, the life and marriage uh, of a couple in northwest London, to move to the uh, trajectory of uh, music uh, as uh, as a vibrant and important culture uh, uh, of London. And Lloyd ended up at a point which was rather... um, oppositional in a way to what Fatima ended up with and I think I I want to open the floor by counterposing that ordinariness what Lloyd said about leave Londoners alone and they will do great things and they will get along to the big questions that Fatima asked on whether the way the media frame London and what London is about is actually framing the way that we might understand the city and its identity. So the floor is open, and questions and comments to the speakers, please. Sorry,
2: I have a question. Um, so, you, really, how do you think the riots in two thousand and eleven uh, reflected you know, just leaving London to get on, normal London? And- I don't think the, the riots reflected London I think they reflected part of London I think they reflected uh, social deprivation across the, um, across the spectrum I think it also reflected a bunch of middle class kids doing a bit of looting as well um, I think you can't use the riots as a metaphor for very much actually i mean they were kicked off by something that happened that were in the uh, police uh police incident but as that spread I, I think um to do so it's almost um dangerous to talk about the riots hinting at the notion that it was somehow a race issue and it kind of wasn't it was more a london issue
0: any of the other speakers
3: I'll tell you what was interesting about the London riots is I had messages from friends in the Middle East saying God it looks bad in London I hope you're all right," which was quite an interesting change Um, but uh, (laughs) that took a while didn't it Um, but I I also think that um, Lloyd is partly right that it wasn't a race issue and there were lots of different things going on what was interesting is you could see uh, m- many journalists in the establishment media struggling to make sense of it and commentators struggling to make sense of it um, no one quite knew what was going on or what was going to happen next um, which says a lot about how connected journalists or media commentators are with what's really going on in, in the cities that they live in
2: That's, um, if I, is this on by the way is there any point in me leaning forward like <laughs> making my back hurt? Um, I I, I agree with that entirely, and that goes along with um, what I said at the beginning of when I started talking that the vision of London that is represented by so much of the establishment, the media, um, the BBC, many, many local um, national papers, isn't the image of London that so many Londoners see. It's why I think um, to follow well, Fatima's point that the media had so much trouble making sense of the riots because it didn't fit into the boxes that they had been prescribing for how London lived um, and, and that was the thing that when this happened and it went across the board almost immediately uh, they were baffled um,
1: I think the riots um sadly flagged up the issue that there's um, a lot of young people in London who feel they have no future and feel there are no jobs for them and there are those that um, have a future and joined in just jumped on the bandwagon. But um, maybe... um, it really showed at the end was the way that Londoners came together to clear up the streets so it it felt to me almost a bit like post the Blitz that people were willing to help their neighbours and even after such a dramatic fragmentation the community came back together to try to make Peckham High Street look all right again bandage shops up Um, it was frightening but maybe it needed to happen to make many politicians who are out of touch with the youth realise how bad things are for some people living in de- really deprived areas.
2: Did you say they're more
1: in touch now? No, <laughs> I don't think they've done very much. I mean, the, the you know the Olympics is it gave us a feel-good um, factor for 2012, and maybe we're still riding on the back of that. But I wouldn't be surprised if those riots happened again a couple of years down the line. I mean, have 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 the Olympics really helped those people who are rioting, you know, kids that have got no future, no no money, no education, who've dropped out of mainstream education, no, I don't think so.
2: I think it's, it's um, as much as kids having no voice, it's people having mm-hmm. no voice, it's, there's a lot of people involved in the riots that have a future if they, if they paid attention, you know, but... The idea that they're not being listened to. It's as simple as that. The worst thing you can do to people is not listen to them. And that was just an expression, look, we're here, we exist. And as um, Eve said, they could happen again. And the thing is, nobody knew it was going to happen then. Nobody will know when it will happen next time. And the great thing was, was, it wasn't serious civil disobedience or a revolution of any sort. It was an expression. Um, right. That's it. We've made our point. Now let's start and clear the streets up.
0: Um, can we take a couple of questions together? Those two, three? Okay. Well, take those three, uh, and then I'll come to you, and another round of questions after that, please. I'm a big Jamaican, Bob fan. and my question is about um, his
1: role and his um, political political statement in music. Why
0: has it changed so much over time? Do you still think his music is relevant? or Because now what I'm seeing produced is what MTV wants to broadcast. Well, that's the okay, hold, uh, hold that thought. We'll take the other two questions here. Just uh, a few for us. Based on the kind of how cultures are still in the London and other cultures adapt to the
1: London culture, do you think that there's when uh, the culture is homogenizing or it's actually splitting the culture actually it's spreading out I think it depends on which and culture it. you look at <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about how much do you think BBC Radio 1 and all well, they played in popularizing underground black music into the mainstream and do you believe that it's also sort of tarnished
0: uh, images of stuff like drum and bass uh, music, just because it is on a mainstream on the mainstream radio station uh, you're I, free do that comments one? from but, the panel okay. and then we'll have another round of questions right. okay.
2: uh, first was the, uh, with the lady with white jumper um, Mr. Bradley is my dad by the way, I'm Lloyd <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been called Mr. Bradley forever Um I'll take this one first. Okay? Um, no, it hasn't. I mean, this is this is the point: is nobody in the entire world that has ever stepped into a recording studio to make a record to sell doesn't want it to sell. Everybody, whether they're underground or what, wants to sell as many records as possible. The beautiful thing about One Extra was it removed uh, the pirates from, uh, say, East London tower blocks where you could. You had to live within a quarter of a mile to hear a tune. Now you could live in the Outer Hebrides and hear that tune. What it did was allow a creativity and a musical culture that was, had been bubbling under forever to get out there and to become pop music because that's the point that people are missing when they're saying, oh, well, it's not real anymore. No, it's not. It's pop music. In the same way as we look at um, the complexion of London and its very, very mixed um so is the pop music spectrum now and it can be because of that so it's it's a good thing so is pop music the final stage of a subgenre before it falls off the edge Uh, i'm not kind of sure i like your um implications there but i'm going to let you get away with it because i'm a guest in your house um it's, no, and because it's,
0: time is pressing as well, everybody so.
2: wants to be a pop star it doesn't matter, they mm. want to be a pop star you you can't say oh no, I want to live in squalor and have credibility no, 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 everybody wants to be a pop star and now it's allowed people to do that uh,
0: comments on homogeneity oh, I was just going to come
1: diversity. back to Lloyd but, um, well, there was an interview with Tiny Temper in Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago and he's, you know, I, he's this incredibly well-spoken, highly educated, intelligent, clean living. Um, he's, he's not what a rock and roll kind of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards type character. And he's so successful and popular. And he's proud to be this person who's head of, not head of, but part of British Fashion Council and shaking Prince Charles's hand because... You know, yes, it is popularizing his image, and it is putting him out in the mainstream. Um, and um, but he feels the reason that he's proud to be that person that he is is that he is um, an example for for black youth who aspire to him. And why not? Why not become rich and famous, and um, you know, still be this. Um,
2: kind of uh polite, educated interesting person. I'll quickly add mm. something to that. I mean, um my parents were immigrants and the reason mm. they came to uh the UK as working mm. men and women was so I would have a better life than they did, mm. I would do better than they did. And I'm really proud to be middle class, That's you something. know. I strove for middle classness and I won't have it used as a stick to beat me over the head with. And there's so many people... This is what we felt. We wanted to be middle class, same as anybody else. And this is what black pop music is allowing us to do. It's representing us everywhere. So, yeah.
0: Fatima, would you like to take the other question about the segregation or coming together? Yeah.
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult to talk about London culture because there are so many subcultures and subsets... I think there is one particular subculture or subset, which is rich London, which is homogenising. And you get... It's talked about an awful lot, and there is resentment from different sections of society towards it. And you've got rich people coming from Qatar or Russia or whatever it is, buying up huge swathes of property in central London. I think that, you could say, is homogenising in a sense. Um, Other than that, I don't know that you could say that about... Various cultures in London. I think it remains very, very diverse.
2: I think the the beauty of London is it allows um, cultures to exist. Like Fabian said, yes, things exist next to each other. I mean, there's no reason why someone can't keep uh, a traditional culture alive, but at the same time, enter into what's happening in the larger environment, bring bits of themselves with them, and take bits of themselves. It's been a two-way street. It's it's been quite exciting. I think
1: it depends which culture, because. culture i've written about they are incredibly isolated and they live in a bubble they're like the amish um if anyone has seen witness um they have no (laughs) contact with the outside world and they are terrified of anyone that looks different to them or um speaks differently to them or is not them because of the holocaust i think and they they fear that their children, if they were to mix with even someone like me, I'm Jewish but I'm secular, um, my father was a Holocaust refugee and my grandparents were born in the Bof, which is now Ukraine. Um they